Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Hi, everyone. We had such a fun event last week with Marilyn R. Atlas, award-winning producer, and Elizabeth Lopez, VP of Literary Development. Grab your headphones, a coffee, and your favorite word processing software, or a paper and pen, and follow along. Quick content warning. This episode discusses the film Promising Young Woman and related issues, and it may also lead to awkward conversations if played in front of your neighborhood kid carpool. Carry on. We have such a fun night for all of you. We're so happy you're here. Hi, I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. I'm a literary agent with Context Literary Agency and the co-founder of MSWL and its sister company, The Manuscript Academy. We exist to bring conference resources and connections to you wherever you may be. Welcome. Gosh, you're always such a great leader. Good Everybody, you're always like Hey guys, I'm Julie Kingsley. I am co-founder at the Manuscript Academy and a longtime writing teacher. Yay! So I'm um, so excited about tonight, you guys. We have two very special guests. We have Marilyn Atlas, yes, one of our very own from the Manuscript Academy faculty and president of the Maryland Atlas Management, and Elizabeth Lopez, VP of Maryland Atlas Management. They are not only talent agents, but book to film experts and authors of one of my favorite writing books. Of course, I'm using it right now. I had it out. We have a book, Dating Your Characters, A Sexy Guide to Screenwriting for Film and TV. So welcome, Marilyn and Elizabeth. Did I Thank get you. exactly what you guys Thank do? You correctly. Yes. You could talk about what all the nuances if you'd like as well. Thank you. I could speak for Elizabeth and myself. We're both delighted to be here and thank you. I thought I would tell you a little bit about how we came to write our book. And I tried to figure out at one time and Elizabeth and I were talking about this. We represent writers and Elizabeth and I started to produce together right before the pandemic. We have several projects in development. Most of them are based on books. We adapt books to television primarily. One of the things that I try to figure out why I wanted to represent certain writers or become involved for years of my life on a project, and it was because the writers wrote rich, three-dimensional, compelling characters. We've also noticed with actor clients, one of the first things they look at, if there's a potential offer or they're going in to read for something, is this a role that I could use parts of myself that I don't normally use in something different? So we came up with the idea of writing a book that would help writers to create more compelling, fascinating characters. And one of the important lessons that we learned is that writers cannot impose themselves on the process. And I'm going to let my longtime associate, Elizabeth, take it from here. Sure. So we just want to emphasize that this is not about you exploring some hidden part of yourself. We know that for some writers, writing can be a form of therapy, which is healthy. If you were fascinating, if you were memorable, you'd be living this incredible life and someone else would be writing your story. So 
we just want to emphasize that you should try to use a small part of yourself when you're creating your characters. However, we believe that your character is not just an extension of you. And if you arbitrarily use yourself as the model or springboard, you may close yourself off to many more possibilities. So Marilyn and I believe that memorable characters transcend everyday life. They represent a timely viewpoint shaped by events we've all experienced and private moments that we haven't. So we just encourage people to consciously make an effort to separate themselves from their character. So we just want to warm people up and do an individual exercise that we're asking you to do from your character's point of view. This should be like a quick thing, like 30 seconds. But basically, we're just asking you to come up with three essential character traits, not physical characteristics, not a job title, but something that speaks to who they are in their core. So interior type stuff. I see someone sent one. Okay, so I'll read out a couple. Stubborn, loyal. Someone else has a brave, people-pleasing, curious. So these are great because these are open-ended. We don't know specifically what sort of concrete example or concrete action this is going to lead to. So there's a lot of possibility in these essential character traits. I'll quickly share something that I'm working on. I do some ghostwriting on the side. My character is driven by a need to pursue social justice. Okay, so she's feisty, maybe a little angry, and she has a military background of some kind. I don't exactly know what. But one other little point I just want to make is that was me summarizing who she is. But if you were to try to answer this using your character's voice, or in this case, in my character's voice, it would sound different. So my quick little response would be, I'm about doing what's right. And if people get upset, who cares? Sometimes you got to stand up and be forceful. I was in the Marines, proud of it. So that's a different feeling, a different sense than my sort of distant, objective view of the character. We just think that there's added value in trying to answer various exercises as directly from the character as you possibly can. And then you can tap into their rhythm, the pacing, the vocabulary they use, and how they express themselves. So sometimes we actually use this exercise, believe it or not, with our own clients. And I just quickly want to reference one time we used this recently with the writer of a project that he's adapting. Okay, the background. His first pass in the treatment depicted our main character as cerebral with a really high emotional EQ. Okay, so she's really smart and she knows how to read people. Awesome. But Marilyn and I really wanted the character to be in more situations where she had to demonstrate a physical skill and maybe the potential for some action scenes. So then we asked the writer to do this little exercise because we wanted him to expand upon the general historical understanding of this character, to not limit her potential to just thinking of her in the limited historical context. And so we were hoping that by doing this exercise, he would tap into some other essential trait that would make any action scenes feasible. I'm going to toss this over to Marilyn, who's going to use an example from The Wire to talk about essential traits of a key character. One of my favorite shows ever, for many of you that have seen it, was The Wire on HBO, written by a journalist who then segued into television. I happened to have a client that was on the show, so of course I always watched it also. But the most interesting, three-dimensional, memorable characters, and to me, the character of Omar Little was extraordinarily fascinating. First of all, this was at the beginning of the aughts, and here was an African-American gay character, and he paraded all three of his lovers throughout the series. On top of that, he was very 
aware of how the justice system works in this country. And if he was called to testify about something, he would listen to what the judge said. And then as a throwaway line, might really talk, if you're a black man in primarily white America, how the justice system works for you. But what was more interesting to me is he was a great reader of people. And why he was amoral, he wasn't immoral, which is very interesting also. He had his own moral code. You could see the importance of his background. He was raised by his grandmother in the African-American church. And once a month, I just think it's an interesting touch, there could be no drug dealing on Sundays. But even more, David Simon had read an article that in the inner city schools, children were fascinated by Greek mythology. He gave that characteristic to Omar. And so in the scripts, because I read many of them, it doesn't say Omar is knowledgeable about Greek mythology. Talk about show, don't tell. One day Omar is in court and he sees a bailiff doing a crossword puzzle. And one of the questions was something from Greek mythology. And very easily he leans over and gives the answer. The other thing, he never ever used the F word in the entire series. So here was someone that was a drug dealer that showed that he was gay. There were so many layers to this character that it was memorable from the moment of how he was introduced. And we are going to talk later about how characters are introduced. When you first see Omar, He's carrying a shotgun. There's a nightlight over his face and he's singing Farmer in the Dell. So we're big believers. If you really know your character, how you introduce them is key. I know when we read, whether it's writers we're working with or or books that we want to staff for television, you have to very much grab us in the first page or two. I'm now going to turn it over to Elizabeth. Thank you. We think that the only way to get to know a character or another human being is on a personal and real level. It's not about how someone looks or even their background experience. It's about how they act when faced with a decision. It's about what they do on their downtime and how sometimes these interests and behaviors permeate scenes publicly. And these essential traits appear regularly in various scenes. Like Marilyn said, we found out that Omar sought escape and refuge in mythology, in ancient larger-than-life tales about doing battle. And we found that out in a memorable beat in a scene that was ostensibly about something else, but it enriched that scene. So we just ask you to be subtle and surprising by knowing what your character is capable of and what they do apart from the scenes that you've concocted for them. This is just a recommendation that you do on your own, not now, but we'd recommend that you do this three essential characters exercise on your own, but from your own point of view, not as a character, but from your own point of view. And we think there's some value in that because there should be, assuming you have some sort of affinity for your character and that there are similarities and that you see a part of yourself in your character, but hopefully there should be a difference in what motivates you or describes who you are on a basic level, apart from your profession, your marriage status, your ethnicity. And there should be a difference between your response and your character's response. Because we think that to properly open yourself up to experimentation in, in trying to create your character, some light, some space has to exist between the type of response you elicited from your character's consciousness and then your own personal response to the exercise. And if not, 
if you guys are like really twins, how can you pick apart or tease apart that consensus response to allow for a slightly different point of view? Because it's that less generic, mainstream, maybe acceptable point of view that will land with more of a visceral punch with your audience. So my point is recognize that your characters have their own minds. Uh, I'll let Marilyn pop in with an, an example. example. Yeah. When I was a little girl, my mother took me to a gallery at a college and it was the first time I had seen a woman sitting on a throne that was not Caucasian. And I became fascinated by this woman. Who was she? How did she rule a country? What was her backstory? All those things. And Elizabeth, when I told her about this, this is something I thought would be interesting to develop as a miniseries. First of all, she lived outside of her time. She lived in a time where only 1% of People knew how to read. She was a woman. She wasn't defined by her gender, etc. We then had to find a writer that could capture this rich character and help bring it to life and make it marketable. And the writer that we felt was the best writer for the adaptation of this true story was a writer that we gave an exercise. What was the exercise? Do you want to say again, Elizabeth? I think it was Pawn versus Queen. <laughs> it was. Okay. And for some of you will get to see our book later today. But what was so interesting, when we got to know the writer, it turned out that he was Asian. His grandmother was the only person in his family that when she was told she should be married at 14, she said, no, I'm not going to be married till I'm in my 20s. I'm going to live my life and do what I want to do. So whether he had a role model or it was so much of his own upbringing, he related to this character and was able to bring something extra to the exercise that Elizabeth and I gave him and did an amazing job for us on that. So our book is very playful. And I'm sure some people might say, how do simple, fun, Cosmo-type quizzes and questions like really help you? For one thing, they take some of the pressure off because psychological excavation can be daunting. And it may seem unnecessary depending on what you're writing, if you're writing an action movie. So let's take a fun exercise, but apply it to a character on the dark and scary end of the psychological spectrum. So this character, regardless of her actions, is sympathetic and maybe even a hero because we understand her rationale on a primal level. I'm using the example in the film written by Emerald Fennell, Promising Young Woman. Okay, so Cassandra is the main character. What do we think about when we start to try to pinpoint her motivation? Let me just quickly summarize the movie if people haven't seen it. She wants to take revenge. That's the basic through line. Why? Quick content warning for everybody. Oh, because she's been traumatized by her friendship with a girl who was raped. So okay. Cassandra's trauma is once removed or a degree apart, but it landed very powerfully with her. And it's that which drives her to take dangerous steps to punish or teach other offenders or potential offenders. But my question is, who is this woman outside of her trauma? Does that person even exist? To go quickly into what her background is and what she does outside of her revenge and her wrath, she has a pretty shitty job, but at least she likes her boss. She barely dates or tries to heal. Her only outlet is this vendetta that she's wreaking on people. She doesn't really have any friends, but she still sometimes tries to see her dead friend's mother. So she has a very limited social circle. So my question is, what is it that tells us about her on a deeper level? I'll stick because, with your sense. Yes, thank you. She seems to derive most of her value from who her friend was. 
That's very interesting. Her friend's history is more important than her own. And what she's incapable of doing for herself, she could do for someone else. And I was just thinking, I know many people produce this, but I think one of the first producers was Margot Robbie. Here again, going back to what we've been talking about, here's an actress that knows good writing, that knows rich characters, and she signed on, yes, there were many producers, to produce this. And I think that whether it was conscious or unconscious had a lot to do with it because it brought something different than how we usually see these characters portrayed, especially in light of Me Too. So if you're the writer, how does your experience with Me Too type incidents, which can fall all along the spectrum from rude catcalling to criminality, how does that verge from this particular characters? In other words, how would someone without a devastating sexual experience even try to write a story from the perspective of an incredibly damaged, bitter soul? That's the question. That's the test. How do you do that? And I think, again, one of the things that we always think is so important is writers being able to create a rich character arc. And of course, I think one of the best examples is Breaking Bad. And I might add, when Vince Gilligan wrote that, no one wanted that. This was not a character that many people responded to. And yet, it is one of the most fascinating characters and memorable to me. Because when had you ever seen a nebbishy chemistry teacher who is willing to go to all kinds of extremes under the justification that he's been diagnosed with cancer, his wife is pregnant, he has a special needs child, and what is he willing to do? He becomes a big meth dealer. And what always fascinated me about the series, he justified it. And we tried to, as an audience, maybe understand, and yet it was all about power. So Vince Gilligan was a writer that was willing to take the character to the most extremes and give him many layers. Elizabeth, did you want to give the exercise about values? Yeah, I guess we should just emphasize how important it is for people to get comfortable with the idea of amplifying or taking to the next level any of their own natural responses to characterize to character exercises or those character exercises done through the character's point of view. Because these exercises ask you to look at the character's values, which probably bleed through with your own. With what Marilyn has said, it's usually helpful to try to push that character's values further down on the scarier end of the spectrum. Because that's the kind of person you want to know about. That's the kind of person who draws you in. It's the kind of person you don't want to know in real life, but you're fascinated by. So if you were to take a benign, silly getting to know you exercise, like what's your character's favorite pet? So you could answer that in various ways as the Carrie Mulligan character, Cassandra. She might not like pets because oh, they're so cute and dogs and cats are infantilized and like little outfits and they're not in control of their own bodies. They're there to amuse their owners and outside audience and get that audience's approval. So that's not going to be what Cassandra's about. She might actually answer you and come up with a non-traditional pet like an alligator. So, you know, why? Okay, because she respects its tough skin, its bite, how it skulks around waiting to strike. And if I were responding to the exercise just as me, Elizabeth, not as my character, I might say, okay, I like fish. They swim with their own kind. They're kind of distant from humans. They don't need us to survive. They breathe their own air in their own way. Clearly, I'm a misanthrope. But even if I wanted to write a Cassandra-like character, I'd have to go more extreme, more dangerous to be able to pull that off. So how would I practice demonstrating that urge in other ways? That's the question. And why is there a necessity to do that? 
We know that IP is so important in the marketplace and there's so much material in the marketplace. And that's one way of distinguishing yourself. And I think Marilyn would agree with that. Oh, absolutely. Um, Because besides finding a writer, unless you've written a novel that has done phenomenally well in the marketplace and you have that kind of control in wanting to do the adaption, a lot of time is spent finding a writer that relates strongly to your material. But more importantly, one of the key attachments are actor attachments. And I could tell you from 25 years working with actors that for them, it's all about character. Many years ago, a client got an offer to do a play in New York. I read the play. I thought it was less than okay. I said to the client, are you really sure you want to do this? And he loved the character. And that was his interest in wanting to do it. And when the play was reviewed, it got mixed reviews. But all the critics talked about this one character that this client portrayed that seemed like it should have been in another play because it was so rich. And so that's really important. Again, another reason with so much IP out there. There's 485, my numbers might be off here, new television shows and streaming. So there's more opportunities for writers. And if you're writing books that you see could be perfect for streaming or premium cable, you need to be thinking about it because the actor attachment and the writer attachment are very key. So I'm going to let Elizabeth talk a little bit more about Cassandra. So going back to the pet exercise and my fish response, obviously not being at that Cassandra level. So if I were to amp up my fish response as Cassandra, she might say, okay, not just fish, but uh, a shark. And for all the obvious reasons, but how do we tease that out? How is that useful for us for deeper meaning? All right. Some sharks don't travel in a group. In fact, they target pods or schools, so they don't seek one target, but hope to get one by attacking an entire group, which is interesting. Could that then be extrapolated into how this Cassandra character attacks? So she doesn't do the safe thing, perhaps, of a one-on-one attack. She chooses to strike in a crowd for the danger, for the adrenaline rush, or because of pod logic. Her odds are better. She can just swoop in and is guaranteed a bite of someone there. Now, the point is to let your mind ramble and unravel and tease apart your responses. Don't be satisfied with your initial response, alligator, shark. You know, how is that useful to your further understanding of your character? Someone asked a question. I want to make sure that we answer it. I just saw it. What does IP mean? IP is intellectual property. It's a book a true story, that's IP. And more than ever, IP is at the forefront a lot of what's being developed in Hollywood today. So I hope that answered everyone's questions. We also think it's very important how our characters introduced. Let's talk about Cassandra. We see her drunk when she's introduced and we can make assumptions about her. But what we find out is that our assumptions are not correct. And as we look further into her small circle of friends in her family, it's radically different. So what we're assuming as viewers, or if you read the script, is something different. I'm sure everyone's seen Reservoir Dogs. There was a scene in there that I still remember just had such an impact on me. For those people that are not familiar with it or forgot, came out in 1992, Quentin Tarantino, I love crime stories, but what was interesting about this, he gave all the characters names, they couldn't know each other, of a color. And there was one scene 
that said it all to me about this character, and I'm going to ask for a response. Mr. Pink, and I think it was Steve Buscemi, is eating in a restaurant, and he finishes eating, and he's with a friend, and his friend says the waitress is expecting a tip. And Mr. Pink says, I don't tip. Pause. And then his friend says, but that's how she makes her money. And Mr. Pink says she should learn how to type. I maintain that Quentin knew his character so well, that dialogue is rich with subtext, but also tells us something about the character. So let's take 30 seconds. What are those two phrases? I don't tip and she should learn to type. What does that tell us about the character? Yes, Pink is old school with gender roles. There's so much here and that's part of what Elizabeth and I talked about when we were creating the book, look how many different answers you could come up with. And that's what makes characters memorable, not necessarily your first reactions. I'm going to turn it back over to you. These are terrific, everyone. Thank you. So I'm going to share my screen shortly. We just want to actually look at a quick little snippet of a scene from Promising Young Woman where we are introduced to normal Cassandra, not revenge about punished people, which is what she does at night. But you should know that Gail is her cool boss and she tells Cassandra that she recommended her for a job at a coffee supplier. Okay, so here's the scene. A pretty hipster girl, Ruby, comes into the shop. She waits patiently at the register and Cassandra makes no attempt to serve her. Why did you do that? Because you've worked here for three years. This is a summer job for a stone teenager. It's not a career move. I'm pushing you out of the nest, honey. You're stinking up the place with your sad little face. Okay. Good acting, Elizabeth. Maybe I'll oh. sign you. Yeah, thank you. So anyway, the scene goes on to show how even though Cassie likes shooting the shit with Gail, that friendship isn't enough to get her to finally take the hipster girl's order. And then the girl walks away, so then Gail loses business. And then Cassie protests that she likes working there, but then she admits that she doesn't. She just shows up because she likes Gail. But the writer, Emerald Fennell, could have chosen to show us the mundane routine of Cassandra's daylight life as she goes to work. We could have gotten an interior ramble about how she hates her job, And there are pros and cons to that approach. The point is, we just want you to inject your work with possibility and to consider alternate ways of accomplishing what you want to accomplish. Something that we learn from the scene that's important is that the coffee shop is Cassandra's only safe space. And it's the only place where she has fun with someone and there's light banter. It's like a light scene in a kind of, not a jury movie, it's a menacing, fun, pulsating movie, but it's pretty grim. And so this is one of the few light scenes that are peppered throughout the movie. My point is, it's important to recognize the limits of where your personal background, your experiences, overlays onto the character's background, so that you're aware of how much further you need to go to push that character, to render that character honestly and authentically, because that you know, character isn't you. That character's more than you or different from you in whatever way that makes that character special. Another way of honing into that difference between you and your character is by dividing motivation into its component parts. So Marilyn's going to lead us through that. One of the most important things that I think writers need to be aware of is what a character wants versus what a character needs. And I find that for the most part, writers are very clear what their character wants. What I see missing a lot is what a character needs. So what's the difference between want and need? And could you give me an example? Some of these are great. I think the simplest way is 
What a character wants is conscious. What the character needs is unconscious. But you as the writer must know. As I said, a lot of times when I'll read a script, I find that missing. And I could certainly tell you that actors are very aware of it. One of the things that we talk about a lot is that characters just can't stand in for a group. They have to also stand up for themselves and make it feel personal in your writing. One of my favorites is in Fleabag. Phoebe Waller bridges the character has tons of baggage. She thinks she wants more than frivolous sex. And part of her motivation for this frivolous sex is to dull the pain of what she feels is her boring existence and an unsympathetic family. But what she needs to do is reconcile the fact that she was partly to blame for her best friend's suicide when she slept with her best friend's boyfriend. And there's a very poignant scene in the series where I think it's her father's girlfriend's birthday. And Phoebe goes outside and she thinks her father's going to give her a gift or show her some love. And he gives her a card of a psychologist. And I thought that was so powerful. And again, it's knowing the difference between what to need, but being very, very clear of the need. So Elizabeth, do you want to talk about an individual exercise the writers could do here for want and need? Yes. From the point of view of your characters answering this exercise, what is your character worried about or concerned about on a personal level, on a community level, and then on a global level? And how have they already shown that they've taken actions to try to fix the problem or fix themselves or whatever it is? And what are they still willing to do? I'm seeing a lot of these, and a lot of you guys are able to go deep because you are manuscript writers. You're not screenwriters. This is usually a problem that screenwriters have. But I will say that most of these responses are on the personal micro level, trying to fix relationships, trying to redeem yourself, trying to get a stable job. It's all about the self, which of course is key. If you were to play with expanding the impact of your story, think about this person's success, your character's success. If they achieve that success or a part of it, how is that going to benefit their family? How is that going to benefit their friends? How is that going to benefit their neighborhood? Think about that because people are more willing to give your character the benefit of the doubt if they know that this person has a higher mission or they realize that if they affect this amount of change, they're bettering other people's lives. If it's not a sunny picture, they are affecting other people's lives. It just feels like a bigger, more immersive story. So that's basically what we're trying to hammer home with this exercise, that it's natural to start on the personal level, but think about how you can widen out the influence of your character's change to the wider community. I'll talk a little bit more, Elizabeth, about okay. what you need. In this series, Killing Eve is a wonderful example of a character's want versus their need. And let's talk a little bit about the Sandra O oh character. She's fascinated by the psychopath that is Jodie Comer. She starts off in her business world, Sandra O oh character, as a paper pusher. She's an analyst, but her big desire or want is to be able to figure out the Jodie Comer character who's a psychopath. She wants to know what makes her tick. And what she needs to feel is the sense of freedom that the Jodie Comer experiences, especially 
when she's close to violence. And also, the Jodie Comer character is powerful. She's dominant and she has no responsibilities. So even though there are sides of the Sandra O oh character, we could see why they're in this cat and mouse game. And I think that becomes very interesting because her own goals become clearer, clearer when she begins to become more and more intrigued by Jody or the Villanelle character so she can catch her. And when she catches her, what does she try to do? She tries to flip her to find out about the organization that Villeneuve works for so she could fill a deep part of herself. So I think Killing Eve is just a great example of want and need in two very diametrically opposed characters. So what gets in Sandra O's oh way of her achieving her goals. Her boss doesn't endorse all of her ideas and methodology. The department has a small budget, not much of a support staff. Her husband doesn't support her zeal because she has no energy or time to spend with him. So what she needs is that when she does get close enough to speak to Villanelle, these moments are always fraught with danger. But the Sandra O oh character, Eve, chooses not to take any ultimate action that may finally kill off any future interaction by killing her. So sometimes she lets the Jodie Comer character Villanelle get away and vice versa. So this is a very cat and mouse teasing relationship. But Villanelle enjoys letting Sandra Oh appreciate some of her non-lethal skills, humor, style, and daring up close. And Eve needs that connection. That goes a long way to fueling her obsessive work ethic. So this is a scene from season two. Sandra Oh is talking with Hugo, who is an agent. She points to the picture of Peel's body. Hugo looks. It's discreet, right? It's subtle, boring, relatively, yes. Villanelle's an attention seeker. Most psychopaths are. She likes playing to the calorie. She wants it to be fun. She wants people to know when she's killed someone. She wants me to know. You, whoever, people. So the point of that scene is several fold, and I'll let Marilyn get into that initially. Thank you, Elizabeth. So directly, we see that Eve feels a very strong connection to our serial killer, Villanelle. And she likes it. She likes that Villanelle makes an effort to leave her messages. And Elizabeth and I both comment on this. There's a murder scene where Villanelle takes a bite out of an apple and she leaves it by the victim's bedside. So what do we get here? We get a psychological interpretation with the apple and we also get a very visual interpretation. So I think this is just such a rich series in terms of want and need, compelling characters, how they're developed, etc. Just so that we try to hit upon the fact that, by the way, this particular episode was written by Emerald Fennell, so we're total fans. She could have affected the same type of scene differently. So from a writer's perspective, how could we see how much of a hunger and sense of intuition that Eve has? Is this Hugo guy even necessary? Would Eve talking directly to the murder board have worked? The only thing is it would have made Eve seem a little crazy herself. And maybe that conclusion is something that the creator and the writer, Emerald Fennell, said, well, let's let that come out in the season. We don't want to have that kind of instant conclusion from our audience now. So again, we just want to emphasize that nothing is set in stone. Nothing is destined. Whenever you're writing a really cool scene, think of other ways that you can approach it and play with those different component parts because you may surprise yourself. 
Just thinking, Elizabeth, how interesting it is that Phoebe and Fennell, they were both, they're actresses. So to me, that they're such great writers and these incredible characters fit. And I think one thing that Phoebe Waller-Bridge does that I like is she's willing to break the fourth wall, which you always hear writers do not break the fourth wall unless you may be writing in theater. And she does. And it works. I think when I mentioned earlier to me, one of the key scenes that I found so powerful in Fleabag was a scene when Phoebe's father, she thinks he's going to show her love and how much he cares. And he gives her the name of a psychologist to go to. And that tells us even more about the character. I saw a movie that was at Sundance about two weeks ago, and it had a stellar cast, especially in terms of the leads. And what fascinated me or interested me is that the protagonist and the antagonist were very interesting characters, layered. The supporting characters were flat and boring. And that becomes a big problem we've noticed in a lot of writers' work. Elizabeth, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I guess I'll just say a couple of things briefly, and then I guess I'll sum up. One of the biggest or most common mistakes that we flag in manuscripts that we've read, in screenplays that we've read, is a cast of supporting characters who are not believable and fully realized. So why is that a mistake? If your supporting characters don't work, often you'll find there's no error in the drama you're creating. Supporting characters have to put pressure on the main character. Though they're less important and they have less screen time or page count, they have agendas of their own. And so we encourage you to spend time and energy on them too, because they push and pull on the characters. And there's a reason that the story isn't being told through their eyes. They're at most hero-adjacent material. So that's something for you guys to think about too, that you've landed on your protagonist, you've chosen this person, you're listening to this person and why they're doing what they're doing, and you're understanding their rationale. And they may have friends and allies who are helping them out. But there are a couple of crucial reasons that this person, your main character, is a hero of your story and not one of their best friends or allies. So that's really important to, to realize and to practice in your own writing. Okay, we love sharing scenes that work. That's why we thought it was really important to not just talk about scenes that we really liked and that we remember. We wanted to actually go down and look at the scenes, look at these pieces of writing. We hope that we've said a couple of things that you haven't thought of or that you haven't addressed seriously and that you'll take our advice. But basically the point is that we want you to start creating your character from the inside out because we think you'll be more open to possibility and you may see that your character is capable of accomplishing more things than even you had considered initially. And this is a different approach from some of the books or workshops you may have had, because earlier on in my career, I took classes. And a lot of those classes put an emphasis on approaching your character from the outward in, like making lists. And for me, it was fun to feel like I had a, a sense or a handle on my character because I was checking off things and I understood where my character fell. But I think I became too content early on that I knew my character. If you start from the inside out, you really boil down what's really important to know about your character. And you'll start to get a sense of when you truly have plumbed their soul and really know them as opposed to having a collection of various traits or outward physical descriptives that work for you. That's probably one of the major differences in our approach versus other character type approaches. So basically, we want you to listen to your character's voice, to recognize their impulses, and to be able to burrow into their unspoken thoughts. So that's our goal. And I want to just add one other thing. 
I think if you really know your characters, you could write great dialogue. One of the things that a lot of times when I've, I've read a script and I'll look back on the writer's career, he was a playwright before, she was a playwright before. And that's so key in knowing the characters and being able to write this rich dialogue and dialogue with a lot of subtext is always very appealing to me. We had one other movie we wanted to talk about, but I'd rather we try to answer some questions for you, if that's okay with everyone. Top question. How do you add a character tick without overdoing it? I guess one approach I might think is that if there's a reason that this tick manifests itself and there's different scenes and different degrees where that happens. In other words, when they're slightly nervous or fidgeting and they tap their fingers, that's fine. But when the danger is like really amped up, it's not just the fidgeting. It's they're looking around or their speech starts to change too. If it doesn't feel like it's a constant prop. Yeah. If it grows in degree, I think for me, that's a way of, of thinking about it. I see a question here that someone said that they had an actress in mind for a project of theirs. Oh, yes. I've written a character in my screenplay with a particular actress in mind. She has her own production company. Wow, cool. How do I find her and it as well as her agent to query? Okay. First of all, this is the painful truth. If it's a major A-list actress, first of all, You're going to have to submit it through a lawyer if you don't have a rep yourself to her production company and no doubt sign an NDA. A lot of times if you go through an agent, they're going to ask for a writer's fee. That's a new thing in the industry. And more than likely, they're going to ask, is the project set up? It's not set up. So in my humble opinion, I would see if they had a manager and approach the manager How can the writer create characters, particularly mean girls, who are relatable? As long as they're not 100% mean. (laughs) They're 80% mean, and they must be nice to their mother or their dog or some other creature. So we see that they're not, first of all, they're not static. We're not just going to assume they're mean and become bored of the mean girl. And then also, if we understand, is this mean a persona because they don't really have love in their family? And so they're trying to project and have some kind of power. If we understand the rationale, basically, if we understand the rationale in private scenes, then hopefully this character becomes more interesting. And we're going to want to take apart this little onion head and figure out what's really driving her and see mm-hmm. if there's a, a part of her that's redeemable that we can rally around. Someone asked a question here with the growing popularity of Netflix, et cetera, and self-published books. Is it becoming more published for a self-published book to make its way? Very rarely. A lot of times, one of the first questions that I'll ask or Elizabeth asks or we'll call a production company is, what are the reviews on the book? How did it do in sales? Unless there's already a book deal in place and it hasn't come out yet or there's a little buzz about it or fill, it fits into a certain category. But for the most part, The only, I could be wrong on this. I can think of two self-published books, but they did phenomenally well. That Fifty Shades of Grey, Mm -hmm. which then got a traditional publishing deal. And then I think The Martian or something like that. But the sales were so huge that helped. If you're trying to attach a talent to your project, there's something to consider. Is if the subject matter of your book somehow fits into the star's charity work or an issue that they're really involved in and passionate about, 
then it shows that you're interested in their career. It shows you're interested in what they're you know, passionate about. That might help you, but it's still a long shot, difficult uh, road ahead. But that's something to consider. Okay. How to find reps. IMDB Pro. You could get it for a month free. It will tell you the name of every production company, who the head of development is, who's head of production, and who the reps are. A lot of times people go unlisted. So then it's a catch 22. And of course, if you're approaching, we always do this when we pitch. And I always say this to writers. Why is this story timely now? I think that's key. So everyone knows about IMDb Pro. You can get it for free. I would usually go to managers and agents. If it's a big star, they may, as I said, they may ask for a reading fee. And that doesn't mean that the actor is going to attach themselves. They just get a fee for reading your material for two hours of their time. So there's a question about the title of the book. Like, why did we call it something so playful? Yes, because it's meant to be playful. Because we structured it so that, imagine you're actually dating a person. Like, you don't interview them on that first date. You're very polite. You're wearing good, good clothes. You smell nice. You're approaching your character in a very respectful, courteous way. You're not maybe not. Them <laughs> you're not expecting them to divulge everything about themselves. And so a lot of little exercises are about how you get them to open up to you. And they're just playful little exercises that sort of follow the structure of an actual romantic relationship that you may be trying to cultivate in real life. So that's the title. Do I have a general question? I mean, I would just ask, so I think this has come up and I've seen it. I think a lot of people are confused about how they break into the book to film world. Can you guys give some tips as the best way to start that off for you in your career? Yeah. So as Marilyn mentioned, that's the surest way is to have a traditional publisher behind you, because that way you're basically helping that publisher publicize your book. We recommend writers put in, I don't know, anywhere from $2,000 to $3,000 of their own money in PR to augment what the publisher is doing. And the reason you do that is because you want to sell books. That's the first question you get from anyone. It's okay. Your book sounds awesome. Thanks for the synopsis. Your background is fascinating. I can tell why you wrote this book and why you're passionate and spent two years of your life writing it and promoting it. Did you connect with an audience? Do you have social media interaction that shows that people want more and people want to see this realize on the screen? If you have that activity and that support, then it's easier for people to want to take a chance on you because everything is about risk. Everything is about gambling. And so you want to try to seem like a safe bet. And so if you have the numbers to back up your story, your creativity, it's more of a comfortable business proposition as opposed to you just connecting on a human level with that buyer or potential producer or potential actor or actress. I have the numbers. I have results for myself. I don't just have potential. I'm not just a great person you want to hang with. We might make money together, though. I wouldn't explicitly ever say that, but that's what people are thinking. What we found with writers when they get their first book and a lot of what we've set up, except for this true story miniseries, are based on books and they're first time writers. A lot of what they wrote was very in the zeitgeist. They had been published before, whether it was in a magazine, whether they had a big social media following, that is key. Even lately when I see breakdowns, which are summaries of what's being cast for actors, this is something in the last year that's horrifying to me, but it's true, particularly in certain projects. It will say, please indicate the social media following 
of your actor client. And you hope some of these people have studied, but a lot of times it helps in terms of the financing. So it's a very different world today. Yes. There are things that you can be doing now when you talk about just trying to build your following, what you're doing here in the chat and making sure that those supportive characters in your novel are well-rounded and making sure you're really thinking of that pacing in your novel. And I feel like there's such kind of amazing learning when it comes between writing for film and writing a novel. And you can play with those same themes over and over again. And I think it just makes it just really an interesting conversation. And one last thing, when Elizabeth mentioned before, one of the things, if you get a traditional publishing deal, you want to get an idea how much money they want to put behind you in terms of marketing and PR. A lot of times it's worth it to hire an independent publicist. Say, for example, you want to get some traction in the industry to try to get a blurb and deadline or the Hollywood Reporter or Variety or anything like that, because people pay attention. Unless you get like a ginormous deal, I think of Lena Dunham as a result of her TV show. I think she got something like a $4 million advance. She did not need to do any extra PR. People were going to buy the book. So that's something to put in the back of your mind. You want to make sure that the publishing company is going to be giving you the attention that you think you deserve, which you may not get. Some book publishers charge more than two to 3000 a month for three months. And you want to be very clear if you could get that in your agreement. Will I get something besides Publishers Weekly? And you want to get very specific depending on who you're trying to go after for your audience. I want to thank everyone. Thank you so much, friends. Yep. Take good, good care. Hope to see you again soon. Right, bye. bye. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.